financial stewards to come up and help us uh, pass the baskets around. Uh, if you weren't prepared to give today, there's all kind of other ways that you can give, right? Because we live in a digital age and, you know, I don't know if we always have money on us. And so there's all these other ways you can give. You can, there's a giving box that is out in the foyer. You can uh, set up a bill pay. You can go on lsgive.com. You can even text uh, your offering um, if, you, if you give money that way. But here's the thing. Uh, which, whichever, whichever mode you use to give, let it be in the spirit of redeeming love. And so as that basket is passing in front of you, don't just like snarl at it as it goes by. Actually, actually touch it and, and give God thanks for the good gifts that he's giving you. And thank you for allowing you to participate in this, this theme of redeemed love. So uh, let me pray for our offering and then we'll pass the baskets around. Lord God, thank you. Thank you so much that uh, uh, we don't have a message of... Um, of you can do things yourself, of, of, uh, all of all of what you're valued for is what people can see. Um, the reason why we're valuable, the reason why we have self-worth is because you gave us your worth. Uh, you bought us with a price. Um, and because of that love, because of that love that you showed us as you climbed up on the cross, uh, redeeming love will continue to be our theme. Uh, and so God, use these funds. Use them... Uh, to spread that message of love uh, every, in every dark corner of this world um, because in those dark corners is the place where your love uh, is the most needed. Uh, God, we lift these, these offerings to you. We pray that you use them by the power of Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead, pass the baskets around. As those are uh, being passed around, I actually want to give you a couple announcements that we have going on. The first one is Pastor's Coffee. This is something that we... Uh, that we talk to you guys about pretty often. Um, but by the grace of God, we keep seeing new faces. And so we want to tell you our story at Living Stones. We want to tell you about who we are, how we came to be a church, uh, what we believe in, how we do ministry, what we do for the city. We want to we give you like all this information. And the way that we do that is through our starting point class. Uh, starting point is a, is a time when you can come, you can interact with some of the pastors, you can uh, hear our story, but most importantly, you can hear about how you can get plugged in, because uh, there's all kinds of ways you can get plugged in this church, through, through serving, through uh, joining one of our community groups, so you grow as, as a disciple of Christ, uh, even participating in some of the things that we do in the city. We want to we give you all this info, so we want you to come to starting point class. Uh, it is the first Sunday of every month. It's after both services. Uh, it's only about 20 minutes, and uh, I promise you won't be disappointed. We want you to come. We want you to come and, and find out how you can get plugged in and participate with us here at Living Stone. So please come to the starting point class, the next one we have, uh, which should be the first uh, Sunday in December. My next announcement for you is Hometown Christmas. Uh, every year, the City of Sparks puts on... Uh, an event called Hometown Christmas where they do a parade and they do Christmas tree lighting and all this other kind of stuff. And uh, the past few years, they've actually asked us uh, to participate with them, providing volunteers for different events. And uh, we've done such an excellent job at it that they've actually invited us to handle all of their volunteers for this event. And so if you can imagine, this is a big event for the entire city. And we need lots of volunteers, and so we want you to sign up. And, and I'm going to give you two reasons why I think you should sign up. Um, here's the first one. Living Stones is awesome. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to, like, just brag on our church, though, you know, in a way I am. Uh, the city thinks we're awesome. Uh, 
Think about that. Like the, the city, the secular city of Sparks says, living stones, you guys did such an excellent job. We want you to handle it all. The, the city is coming to the church. Wow. The city is coming to the church to, to get volunteers to, because they know that we're not going to let them down, because they know that they can depend on us, because uh, though they may not know it, um, we have been saved and redeemed by Christ, and actually what we're doing is giving them the love of Christ. And so that, that's the first reason. We, God, since Christ made us excellent, we get to be, bring that excellence to the hometown Christmas. And so that's the first reason why I want you to sign up. Here's the second reason. Um, you ever notice, like, around the holiday season, things get, kind of get dark? Like, people's hearts get a little darkened around, like, this, this time of year. Um, and especially in this area where there's such a low percentage of a Christian message, this area is particularly dark. Um, through this event, we can bring the light of Christ to the city. Um, because we have been changed by God, because uh, the light of Christ resides in us, when people get a chance to see us, interact with us, be served by us, uh, see our smiling faces, they are receiving the light of Christ. You guys are, are holding the light of Christ. So I need, I need you guys, hopefully you're hearing me say, I need you to volunteer. This, this is a big event where we get a chance to really pour life and light into the city. And so uh, as a Christian, that is, that is our main theme, right? Is to shed the light of Christ. Um, there, there's that old children's song, uh, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Shine the light of Christ in the city. This is our opportunity, all right? So there's gonna be a sign up out at the uh, information counter. We want you to sign up. And uh, actually, we're gonna hear a story uh, from one of our members who the last couple years has actually served during the hometown Christmas. So. Thanks, Pastor. First time, let's grow. Man, no pressure. So uh, my name is Jamie. Confession, I didn't really want to serve hometown Christmas the first year I was asked to. I don't like the cold. I'm cold in here right now. I don't like being cold outside. I'm wearing a jacket for a reason. All these guys, nice, nice flannels. I got to wear a jacket. I'm freezing. Second year, I didn't want to help again because I didn't want to go back out in the cold. And I had to deal with figuring out what to do with the kids. I didn't want to do it. But as Christians, Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created for good works. Now, we know we're not saved by our works, but we are created to good works. James, Jesus' brother, talks about we were not saved by our works, but we were saved, and the works that we do are the proof of God's salvation in us. So we got to get outside our comfort zone a little bit, guys. We got to deal with some cold and put a jacket on and love people and make them smile a little bit. Honestly, the best part of it for me yeah, I, I should be giving glory to Jesus. But one of the funnest things, too, is getting to know the people in our community we're serving with. Like, who would have known that Kelly Ball, about yay high, is better at managing float traffic than Christian Ball, tall, yoked firefighter. I think that's in his job description, that he's supposed to be able to manage traffic, and his wife handles it way better. But just getting to know the people you're with is a lot of fun. It's super rewarding getting to see the kids smile, getting to see our town appreciate us, and they really do beg us to keep coming back and be more and more invested year by year by year in this. So come be a part of it. And uh, if you're willing to just ask some questions about how you can serve, if you're ready to sign up either way, talk with Julie out at the Connect desk. Awesome. Did I, did I mess it up too bad? Yep. Yeah. All right, we now want to turn our attention to hearing from the word of the Lord. So we're going to invite Mr. Seth Wolf up, and he's actually going to read the word of the Lord for us. So if you could please stand. 
Today's passage is in Matthew 7, 24 through 29, on page 812 in the Bibles around the room. When I am finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would hear your word and obey it, and that we would not be foolish and reject what you have said to us. I pray that we would know that you are our solid rock and that we can trust in you and in your word. Amen. You may be seated. Wasn't that cool having Seth read for us, huh? The children of our church are just as much a part of our church as the adults. So, um, and frankly, some of the kids can read better than us as adults. So let's just be honest about that, all right? Well, good morning. Uh, We are going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's Jesus' famous sermon. It's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, open to Matthew 7. Grab one around the room and open it up uh, to Matthew 7. It's on page 812 on those Bibles. Now, um, today is the last sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. And next week, we're going to start a new uh, thing looking forward towards Christmas. And that's, uh, it's going to be a series on Advent and about God's triune love for us shown at Christmas time. And so uh, today, though, we finish with Jesus' words, and this is a tale of two houses. Uh, one house survives when a storm comes, and the other doesn't. And it has everything to do with the house's foundation. And when I was going through this, I was uh, going through it with Tim Abina, who's one of our deacons who moved out to Fernley because he wants to get a Livingstone's church started in Fernley. And so he's hard work doing that. So I invited him to help write this sermon with me. And he said, it's kind of like those houses in California that get built on the cliff. uh, And then eventually, because they didn't do the proper inspections, the house starts to fall off the cliff. So if you can see, here's a picture of one of those houses. And you can just imagine, you buy a plot of land, you're like, this is beautiful. The view is great. We're going we're gonna to have this epic house. Let's just build right now. But if you don't do the proper inspections on the land, you wake up one morning to have a cup of coffee on the porch, and all of a sudden, your porch ain't there. 
And uh, that is the problem when we try to build houses without investigating the foundation. And what Jesus is getting at in this text is he says, your life is like a house. And you need to inspect very closely the foundation that you are building your life upon. And a lot of us, we live to build extravagant lives, just like somebody would build an extravagant house. But more important than the quality of the house is the quality of the foundation. And Jesus, to conclude, says, therefore, build your house on the rock. And that's his big idea. So we're going to look at this sermon, the sermon I have for us. Uh, We're going to break it up into three uh, words, foundation, storm, and astonishment. And so the first thing I want to say is foundation. What you build your life upon matters. And the quality of foundation that you have matters. Jesus, in verse 24, says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who wants to be a wise person? I do. He says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Your foundation matters. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Why did it fall? Because it wasn't built on a solid foundation. Your foundation matters. So Jesus here, as a great teacher, is drawing from a lot of Jewish understanding uh, because he was a Jew preaching to a bunch of uh, Jewish people. And he's drawing on this this, uh, very biblical understanding that your house is an illustration for your life and the foundation is an illustration for whatever you put at the center of your life, whatever you built Uh, your your life upon. So rabbis would commonly say that uh, God, because the Old Testament says so, is a rock and we need to be building our house on the rock. And they would further say that the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament, are the rock. But what does Jesus say here? What it looks like? He says, if you do listen to these words of mine, you're building your house on the rock. In other words, Jesus is equating himself right here as one who has the same authority as the one who wrote the Old Testament scriptures. He's he's saying, if you build your life on me, you're gonna be all right because I am God. Your foundation matters. Now, the reality is that we're all building our life on something. And so Jesus is inviting you to investigate what are you building your life upon. And a lot of times we don't think about it. We're just like, yeah, let's go to church today. We show up and here Jesus is getting in your grill and he says, you need to pause and reflect. What are you building your life upon? Do you know your need for a solid foundation? This is a need that uh, we ought to know from a very young age. I think as children, we know this need. I, I was writing this sermon, like I said, with Tim Abina, and he has a, a daughter who I think is four years old, and she was building blocks. They were playing blocks on the carpet, and she kept on building blocks on the carpet, and what would happen? It'd fall down. So without Tim even bringing anything up, his daughter went and got something that was a solid foundation, laid the foundation, and then was able to build a big structure on top of it. 
Because even as children, we know our need for a solid foundation. But why don't we live like it as adults? Jesus is getting in our grill and he's saying, you need to take an investigation of what your life is built upon. Are you built upon sand or are you built upon the rock? Now, if you were to consider the difference between sand and rock, there's nothing morally better about one or the other. They're just things. The difference between the two is that sand is shifty. And sand does not have within itself the capability of sustaining a house in the midst of a storm and a flood. A rock does. One has the capability of bearing the weight of a house. The other doesn't. And there's lots of things in our lives that we build our life upon that are good things. They're not morally bad things, but they just don't have the ability to hold the weight of your soul. So what might those things be for you? Um, The book of Ecclesiastes, we're actually gonna go through the book of Ecclesiastes next year, starting in February. And... uh, it has this one phrase that comes up and it's written up basically on this concept and and the phrase that keeps on coming up is this word meaningless or vanity. And the idea is that, like I was holding my coffee here this morning and you could just see the steam rising up and what happens when you have steam? It just comes up and then it disappears. And the author of uh, Ecclesiastes is saying, this is what all those other things are in our life. They're just like vapor. They're here today, gone in an instant. They're vanity. And so he goes through all these things that he tried to build his life upon. He's like, I tried to build my life upon being the most knowledgeable person. I built my life upon self-indulgence and laughter. I built my life upon hard work and success. I built my life upon wealth. I built my life upon prestige. But at the end of the day, it was all vanity. What are you building your life upon? Is it comfort? Is it a relationship? Is it your family? If an alien were to come from outer space and watch your life and write a chronicle about it to take it back to, to describe what your life was all about, what would they say? A lot of times we can build our life upon um, something as silly as a hobby. We can also build it on something as important as success in our career. You can build it upon your family. But even then, it's vanity, Jesus is saying. Nothing compares to building your life upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ. Everything else you have can be taken away in an instant. And so he says, if you build your House on me, you're gonna be good. If you don't build your house on me, you're gonna fall. And it says, even at the end, and great was the fall of it. And that's how Jesus concludes his sermon. That's a really, this is no more Mr. Nice Jesus here. He gets in our grill. And so what Jesus is asking us to do is he says, I know there's a lot of good things in your life, but compared to me, there should be no comparison. This is Jesus' claim to absolute lordship of our lives. He's not just a good teacher. Jesus is the Lord of all. And he calls his people to have him as Lord of all. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says a really harsh word. He says, if you're gonna be one of my disciples, you need to hate your mother and father and follow me. And when you read that, it's really confusing. 
Because you're like, wait a second, I thought the Bible instructs us to love our father and mother and to honor them and obey them and to care for our family and sacrifice for them. And it all does. And Jesus is not disagreeing with those passages. Here's what he's saying. If you were to compare the two loves, your love for him should look so great that even though you love your family a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, your love for him is so much greater that it looks like you hate your family. It's absolute lordship. And I, that, that should get in all of our grill a little bit. Like I read that and I don't like it because I love my family. If there was something I'm building my life upon, it's like at the core, yeah, my family, my wife, my kids, my parents, my sister, like my family. We can add to it our careers, or like the success of the church, our ministry. I could add to it like, I want this thing to work and I want people to know Jesus, but if I'm building my life upon it, it can still all be taken away in an instant. The one thing that can't be taken away is him. And so how do we build our house on the rock? Jesus tells us, everyone who hears these words of mine And does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So how do you build your house on the rock? You got to hear Jesus and obey Jesus. Hearing and doing. Not just hearing, not just doing. There's a lot of people, it's really easy for us to get caught up in doing without hearing the words of Jesus. We get caught up in saying, well, I'm going to live my own truth. I'm gonna be a good person. I'm gonna live life according to what is right in my own eyes. I'm gonna follow my own opinion. The problem is it's our own opinion. And Jesus is like, you know, I don't really care about your own opinion. You need to live according to my words. My truth is what stands. And then on the flip side, there's a lot in churches all over the world. It's easy to come and build your life upon hearing but not followed up with doing. It's easy to come to church and listen to the words of Jesus and have your heart warmed. It's easy to come to church and listen to Jesus and admire him. But it's a different thing to obey him. And so if we're gonna be God's people, if we're gonna follow after him, we need to both hear his words and do his words, amen? James 2 comments uh, against the church who, who is really caught up into this whole hearing but not doing thing. And, and they're like, it's okay, we have faith. God is with us. And he's like, your faith means nothing if you don't have works. He's like, you say you believe in God, that he is one. Good for you. Even demons believe and they shudder. And then he says, faith apart from works is useless. Rather, your faith ought to be completed by your works. Your works, your obedience to God is demonstration that you actually believe him. And so, what are you building your foundation on? Is Jesus your foundation? If you're coming here and you're not a Christian, if you'd classify yourself as a non-believer, this might be like a little shocking to you on the front end. But I would just say this. This is Jesus' invitation to you to say, investigate your foundation. What I want you to see from this text is Jesus is not claiming just to be a good guy or a good teacher. He's claiming to be Lord of all. And if that's his claim, I think he's worth an investigation. And so I would call you to start picking up this passage, start reading in Matthew 5, listen to his words and see if it's worthy of giving your whole life to. If you are a Christian, are you really having Jesus at the center of your life? Do your friends agree that Jesus is your foundation? 
Is there anything that you've been hearing from him and maybe admiring about him, but you're refusing to obey? In this sermon, he's talked about caring for the poor, how to handle our sexuality, what it looks like to pray, forgiving our enemies, not serving God and money because you can't serve both. Is there anything that God has been bringing up that you're like, well, I like it, but I'm still gonna keep in my sin. If you're doing that, you're building your house on the sand, not the rock. And the invitation for you today is to turn from that and hear and do Jesus's words because your foundation matters. Why does it matter? Because a storm is coming. This is my second point of the sermon. He says, a storm is coming, verse 25. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Jesus is saying that winds are coming. Rain is coming. Flood is coming. And this is an illustration that Jesus is using just simply to say that uh, whether you like it or not, a storm is coming. And again, the Jews would have interpreted the storm to be uh, tribulation, trial, suffering, and chaos. When you read through the Old Testament scriptures, that's what you see storms represent. And so he's like, the reason why you need a solid foundation for your life is because tribulation and storms are coming. And some of you are in those storms today. Um, It's not if they come, right? It's when they come. And if you're not built on a solid foundation, that storm is gonna take you out. And so there's everyday storms. There's financial calamity. There's broken relationships. Like we're going into Thanksgiving week and you guys are gonna face some of those storms around the table this week, okay? There's, um, there's uh, just, uh, there's storms with your parents. There's storms with your children. There's storms within your marriage. There's uh, storms at your work. There's illness. There's death. There's cancer. Um, there's dealing with the sins of other people, harming, again, harming you and, and acting out against you. And there's also the storms that are raging within you because of your own sin, fighting with your desire to be obedient to God. I think that most of the Christian life can be classified as being in a storm with moments of glory. <laughs> And so Jesus says, this is why it's so important for you to have your life built upon a solid foundation because a storm is gonna wipe you out if not. And so there's an everyday sense to the storm, but there's also an eschatological sense to the storm, meaning there's an end time sense to the storm. And so a lot of times when you read the whole of the Bible, what you'll see is that God's wrath and judgment is described as a storm. And one day Jesus is saying that he will return again to make all things new and he's gonna cleanse the earth and it will be a great storm of God's wrath. And if you're not built on the solid foundation, which is Jesus Christ that day, that storm will wipe you out for eternity. But the hope in the passage, it's not all doom and gloom. The hope in the passage is that God's given you a way out. God's giving you an anchor in the midst of the storm. He's giving you a foundation. And the foundation is him. And so what I want you to see from Jesus is Jesus is having straight up real talk with you, but he's also being gracious with you. You might say, well, this is Jesus being mean. It's not Jesus being mean. 
It's not mean to warn somebody of a calamity that's coming. He's being honest and gracious. And so he says, here's the hope. If your life is built on me, no matter what comes your way, you're gonna be all right. You're gonna be all right. And some of you, in the last couple years, you've experienced extreme loss. Um, Earlier, there was a woman in our church Remember, she was sitting right over here, and I just remember being with her at the hospital when her husband died. She has a handful of little girls. Extreme loss. But because she's built on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, she's going to be all right. That's the hope. When your life is built on something else, a relationship, um, a hobby, a career, it's shifting sand. It can't bear the weight of your soul. And some of you have been in relationships where somebody expected you to be everything to them, right? They expected you to be their everything and you can't bear the weight. The only person who can bear the weight of that, that responsibility is Jesus. And so when we start putting the weight of that responsibility on other people, they should respond back to us, don't put that juju on me, Ricky Bobby. I can't bear the weight of your soul. A career can't, nothing can. Jesus can. Jesus is the only one who can. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so a storm is coming, and the hope is, is that if we really do place him at the center, no matter what happens, you're gonna be all right. There's a story, I'm reading this book called History of Christianity by Huso Gonzalez, and um, there's a story of a great bishop named Basil the Great. And he was an older guy. He kind of was a sickly dude. And when they wanted to install him as a bishop, they were a little worried because he had health problems. And his response to them was, you're installing a pastor, not a gladiator. Like, I think it's going to be okay that I'm like a little bit of a sickly dude. And so they ended up installing him. And he was... Weak in, the, in his health, but he was strong in his spirit. And he was a great preacher, and he continued to preach the Trinity of God, which we see in the scriptures. And he continued to uh, preach that Jesus was both God and man, and he wouldn't deny it. And because of that, persecution came against him. And they threatened to kill him, they threatened to send him into exile, and they threatened to torture him. And this is how he responded. He says, all that I have you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. Nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to torture, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ, and the death would be great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. And so his torturers were taken back, and the prefix said that no one had ever spoke to him this way. And Basil answered, perhaps it's because you've never met a real bishop. Here was a guy whose house was built on the rock. And I would say, even as real Christians, the thing that's gonna test a real Christian between a fake Christian and a real Christian is whether or not you can weather a storm. Jesus himself says that. He says, there's gonna be lots of people who say they wanna follow me, but as soon as a storm comes, they're gonna wither up and, and fall away. Real Christians have the ability to weather a storm because they're built on the rock. So Jesus says here, What kinds of people are there? 
The wise person is the one who builds their house on the rock, on him. The fool, or in Jesus' words, better translation, the stupid person is the one who doesn't. And so the question is for you, are you going to be a wise person or a fool? Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm not calling you stupid. Um, I'm saying this is why it's so important for you to investigate. Keep looking into it. But this is really Jesus' call saying, are you going to be a wise person or a fool? The wise person builds his house on the rock because they have the long game in mind. The fool builds on the sand because they want instant gratification. Which one do you think our culture tends to fall into? Instant gratification. And so this is where we as the church need to be different from the culture because we need to be about a bigger picture. We can't be building our lives around something just for instant gratification because if that's what we're doing, a storm's gonna come and it's gonna wipe it all away. And frankly, sometimes you need a storm to wipe out your house to realize that you need a better foundation. And many people come to Christ like that. In fact, I had this one friend who's not a Christian, his name is Joe, and he's like, that's actually why I don't believe in Christianity because it seems like people only become Christians after something bad happens. It's just a crutch. And it's like, yeah, it's a crutch in that moment. But you know what makes it real? Is that they keep on following even when things get good. But there's a real sense where God in his mercy will sometimes send a storm to wipe your house out and you realize, I need a better foundation. And if that's happening to you right now, this is your opportunity. He is a better rock, a better foundation. And so, um, how do we get there? Like, sometimes I read these words of Jesus and I'm like, okay, it sounds nice, but where do I even start? Like, how do I even get motivated to follow his words? And this gets to my third point, and it's the word astonishment. Astonishment is the gateway to hearing and doing and is thus the first step to building your house on the rock. If you are not astonished by Jesus, you will not want to follow Jesus. Look at verse 28, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So imagine that, Jesus is preaching to these crowds, he just finishes his sermon with this last illustration, and people are sitting there just astonished. The word astonished can be translated as struck or blown away, mind blown. Like, they're just sitting there in awe at Jesus's words. Because the way that Jesus finished his sermon, he says, and great will be the fall of it. He just like drops the mic and walks off. And they're astonished. Why are they astonished? Well, they're astonished because he has a different kind of authority than all the other teachers they've ever heard. This mentions scribes here. These were the people who recorded scripture and taught people about scripture. It'd be basically like your pastors. As pastors, we have authority because we're preaching God's word. This is true. Like when I stand up here, I'm not standing up here on my own authority. I'm standing up here though on borrowed authority that comes from the scriptures. And it's my job to sit here and say, this is what God says, so therefore we gotta follow what God says. And there's authority to that. But I'm operating off of borrowed authority. The scribes were operating off of borrowed authority. But then Jesus just shows up and he doesn't say, well, this is what God says. He says, this is what I say. Because I am God. 
And he's coming with a different kind of authority here. And so uh, we, we see this breakdown in four ways. One of, first of all, he comes with a, an authority of a teacher who has experience. Um, he's teaching them this whole uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. And if you read through it, it has this air of truth, this ring of truth. I've been studying this week and I found that many Muslims and uh, Hindus even believe Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Though they don't accept Jesus as God, they believe these words because they have the ring of truth to them. Because he's teaching as one who has experience. You know, if you were taking a history class and you were learning about uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom... Um, and the teacher just did a bunch of study on it and, and got all into it, it'd probably be a pretty cool class, right? But, and he would have some authority based on his knowledge. But if a war vet who was there walked in, who would have the greater authority? The guy who was there. Because he's teaching off of his own experience. And so when Jesus is saying, this is how God wants you to pray, he is praying as one who knows exactly how God wants us to pray. When Jesus says you cannot serve God and money, he's, he's speaking as your creator who knows how you were created to operate. When Jesus is saying, this is how you need to think about marriage, this is what it looks like for you to forgive your enemies, he's speaking as one who has experience because the living God has been forgiving his enemies for a long time. He's got experience. So he speaks as an authority of a teacher who's been there. And then he also speaks with the authority of Christ. Now, if you're new to church, here's what you need to know. Christ is not Jesus's last name. That blew my mind when I first learned it. Christ is Jesus's title. It means Messiah, coming king, promised king. And what you have to understand is this whole book, it's a library of books, 66 books, but it's put together as one story and it's the story of the coming king, the coming Christ. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gathers his people and he doesn't talk to them just as a rabbi. He talks to them as a king. And he says to them, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament says about this king. I came to fulfill because I am the Christ. And he sends us out as his people to be a different people than the people of the world. He sends us out to be light in the midst of darkness. Why? Because he is the light in the midst of darkness. And so he speaks as the authority of a king. Thirdly, he speaks with the authority of a judge. The passage we covered last week, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then later on he says, for those people who do not follow the Father's will, he says, I will declare to them, I depart from me, I never knew you. So Jesus is speaking as one who's saying, on the last day, the day of judgment, guess who's going to be standing there doing the judging? Me. I'm going to be the one who's deciding who's in and who's out. He's speaking as the judge. Now, in a courtroom setting, after the trial is done, everybody might have speculations about what the judge is going to rule, but who's the only person in the room who knows exactly what the judge is going to say? The judge. And so when the judge is here, entered into history, telling us how he's going to judge in the future, don't you think we ought to listen? If he's the one who says, build your house on me Otherwise, you're going to have a great fall because I know how this thing ends. We ought to listen to him now. He speaks with the authority of the judge. And then lastly, my favorite one, he speaks with the authority of God in the flesh. 
It's so funny when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, some great men of God, when they spoke and had a word from God, what was the phrase that they said? Thus says the Lord. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus' phrase that he keeps on saying? Truly I say to you. So Jesus is claiming here not just to be a a representative on behalf of God. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And in fact, if you were to look at the end of chapter 4, right before he gets into the sermon, why are people gathered around Jesus in the first place? It says in verse 24 that it was because they were bringing him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them all. So the reason that people are even there listening to him in the first place is because he's showing them that though he's human, he's also greater than human because he's God. He's just healing people. Now, there's been a lot of people in the Bible who've had the gift and ability to heal people, but they all had to do it through prayer. They would pray. In the Old Testament, you'd see prophets praying for somebody and then God would heal them. But how does Jesus heal people? Be healed. In the Old Testament, there was people who had the ability to cast out demons. And they would pray and they would fast and they would try to cast out demons. How did Jesus cast out demons? Be gone. Even the greatest men of God were susceptible to the elements in the Old Testament. Storms and droughts and all this stuff. But when Jesus is in the midst of a storm, what does he say? Be still. Like, he has a different kind of authority here. Like, he's speaking as one who is not just a man, but is the authority of God in the flesh. And it astonished people. Why? Because it it astonishes you more to be in somebody's presence than if you just hear a messenger. There's been a lot of great speeches in our country's history. The Emancipation Proclamation was one of the greatest speeches ever recorded uh, by Abraham Lincoln. But can you imagine how weak it would have been if he would have just had a reporter read a letter from him? What gave it its authority is that the president gave the message. Or imagine Dr. Martin Luther King, his I had a dream speech. What if he's like, yeah, I'm feeling a little tired. Let's just have somebody else read what I wrote down. It wouldn't have affected the civil rights in the same way because it didn't come from Dr. King. The presence of the person matters. The presence of the one who has the origination of the message matters. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I am God. The same one who said, let there be light and there was light is teaching us how to pray. The same one who holds all things together by the word of his power is teaching us what it looks like to live in relationship with one another. The same one who holds the universe together is teaching us what it looks like to be persecuted for following after him. So there's this element where we should just sit in awe over the fact that this is God speaking. There's a direct correlation to your desire to follow Jesus and you being astonished at him. There's a direct correlation. I remember listening to this preacher, um, Edmund Clowney, he's now passed away, and uh, Edmund Clowney, when he was in his 70s, somebody asked him, what's your favorite uh, words in the Bible? And he's like, I know, as a pastor, I'm supposed to say they're all God's words, they're all my favorite. And he's like, but I love Jesus's words. And in some Bibles, you know how Jesus' words are shown in red? He's like, I love the red words of the Bible. 
It's like there's just something about the red words of the Bible that astonished me more than all the other words. You know what? I think that's proper for us. I think we should be stunned by Christ. And I'm gonna tell you flat out right now, if there's an area in your life where you're not wanting to follow him, it's because you're not astonished by him. And you won't get there unless you're first astonished by him. And so at the very end of this, when Jesus stops speaking, Matthew, the recorder of Jesus' sermon, says, this is what it looks like for you to follow. You got to be astonished. Now his disciples got it partly right, didn't they? This is at Jesus' beginning of his ministry. His ministry lasted three years until he was put to death. And in the beginning of his ministry, they were astonished by his teaching. They were astonished enough to follow him, to leave their jobs and families and to follow him and become one of his disciples. But they weren't astonished enough to die. Do you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Thursday night before Jesus died? All the disciples said to him, hey, we got you, bro. We're with you. If people come against you, we'll die for you. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the rooster crows, you guys are all gonna abandon me tonight. And that's exactly what happened. When the storm came their way, they all fled and abandoned Jesus. But what did Jesus do? He held fast in the midst of the storm. In fact, when he was nailed to the cross, you could say that he was thrown into the category five storm of God's wrath on our behalf. And then three days later, he resurrected to conquer death. He resurrected to conquer the devil. And he resurrected to new life as the victor over all storms. And it was only when Jesus' disciples saw his death and his resurrection that they got a reinvigorated courage to cling to him no matter what. And at that point, after the resurrection, then they were astonished enough to die. Before, they were just astonished enough to follow, but after the resurrection, they were astonished enough to die. And there's a reason why. Because there's something about watching your Lord conquer the storm that makes you say, I think I can face this thing. I think I'm gonna be all right. And so the call for you today is this. You need to take time to be astonished at Christ. When's the last time you did that? You know, that's what Sunday gatherings are all about. You know, I know that it's fun. We get to see each other, see your friends and catch up and hear a message from the Bible, all that. But we really gather on Sundays for one reason, to be astonished by Christ. We sing songs because we're astonished at him. We take communion because we're astonished at him. This is where it all happens. We're not here to feel good about ourselves. We're not here to dress up and look good and and to learn how to do more good works. We're here to be astonished at Christ. And when we are astonished at Christ, obedience will follow. Good works will follow. And I just fear that one of the reasons why we're not so astonished with Christ is because we've busied him out of our lives. I talk to so many people. How are you? How are you doing? How's your week? Busy, 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 busy. How's your soul? I don't know. I'm just so busy. I don't have time. We're so busy. We don't have time for Christ. Perhaps the greatest trick of the devil is to make us too busy for our God. And so I think what this calls all of us to do is to take a moment, reflect on our foundation, and just be astonished by him. Now you might say, I'm not a great person. I'm not a good thinker. I'm not very smart. I don't know a lot about the Bible. You guys can do this because you know a lot about the Bible. I don't, so I don't know where to start. And I say to you, the only thing that you need to be astonished by Jesus is need. 
You need nothing else. Even the simplest person can do it. And I'll steal an illustration from the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He says, if you ever go down by the sea, there's gonna be a picture of a limpet. Okay, these are called limpets. I didn't know that until recently. These are limpets. They're a type of mollusk that clings to a rock. They're really little. He's like, if you ever go down to the sea and you see a limpet and uh, you try to strike it with your cane, what's it gonna do to the rock? It's gonna just suction cup and cling to the rock because it knows that if you try to hit it and smash it, as long as it's clinging to the rock, it's gonna be okay. And you can sit there and you can wear it out and you can try to get it off and you never will because that thing is clinging to the rock. Now, if you think about that little limpet, it's not an intelligent creature. It doesn't have a very high IQ. No other animal in the animal kingdom is impressed by a limpet. There's no dolphin being like, did you see those limpets? They're so impressive. Like, it's a simple creature, but it knows this one thing. If I cling to the rock, I'll be all right. And I say this to you today as the sheep of God's flock. If you're coming here broken, if you're coming here and you're like, my life's not impressive, if you're coming here and you're like, I'm simple, if you're here and you're a child and you're like, I just don't know very much, if you're here and you're like, I just, I don't know what I'm supposed to really think about or I I don't know the Bible, I don't know how to pray, you just need to know this one truth. If you cling to the rock, you'll be all right. So build your house on the rock. Let's pray. God, we just confess before you all the ways in which we've built our life on shifting sand. We confess to you all the ways in, in which we you know, have just placed other things as more important than you, even good things like our family and our careers and our jobs and relationships. And Lord, we just, we come to you now with repentant hearts saying, we forsake those things as our foundation and we wanna put those in the proper place of our life and we wanna put you in the proper lit place at the center of our life. And we ask for the courage, God, to face storms. And we know, God, like from this passage, that the the strength doesn't come in our life, the strength comes in our foundation. And so the courage arises not from us, but from you. And we pray, God, I just pray that you would make Living Stones churches all across northern Nevada. We pray that you would help us to plant more churches. We pray for all the currently the five Living Stones churches, that Living Stones would be known as a group of people who cling to you in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. Like make the mark of Living Stones churches be that we are the people who cling to Christ. I pray for our visitors here today, those who would classify themselves as non-believers, I pray that they would see your loving heart towards them. I pray that they would examine their current foundation and, and question whether or not it's really worthy of bearing their soul. And I pray that you would show them miraculously that you are worthy of bearing their soul and only you can handle it. Would you do this for your glory? Amen.